Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Andrew Thomas. Andrew is the founder and managing director of Better You, a UK health company specialising in nutrients and supplements which lack in modern Western diets and lifestyles. Andrew, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Scott. It's a real pleasure having you. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership, Andrew. So if we just look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word really mean to you and how does it resonate? Wow, I mean, it's such a it's such a small word for such a broad term. And for mm. me, the first word that comes into mind is visionary. I'd like to think that I take the role as visionary within the brand and the company that is Better You. Um, I started the company um, and continued this day to be hands-on on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis um, and lead the team to a level of enthusiasm and passion that almost goes beyond my expectations of them. Uh, I, I think I think visionary is, 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 is absolutely right because Without sharing that vision, I think some very, very talented individuals that we have here at Better You are merely going through the actions. They're doing what they do very, very well. But without that end goal, without the drive and determination to get somewhere at the end of this journey, the journey becomes a little vacuous. It, 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 you can meander. Uh, I, I think having this very, very fixed focus on whether it be standards, values, or simply an end commercial goal, I think it's absolutely fundamental for the day-to-day running of, of a brand and a company. Mm, I think it's very much focusing on the long term, isn't it, rather than just being distracted by short-term goals. And I think that's very much um, the case as to sort of how better you came about, isn't it? Of course, I, mean, I understand the business, um, correct me if I'm wrong, launched in 2007, and it was two years of product development that went into that. So there was a great deal of preparation, a great deal of perseverance, and a great deal of focus on the long term as an exemplary um, example there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the preparation, it's funny, when you look in hindsight, you can say, well, you know, I was, I was you know, building the brand up for launch. But the fact of the matter is, I was finding my feet in a very new industry. And for me, I launched Better You predominantly out of uh, a, a newfound belief in the importance of nutritional supplementation. I've been an asthmatic from the age of 12, mm. reliant on steroid in, uh, inhalers. And it was actually a chance encounter with a biochemist, a, a genius guy who's a friend of mine and the brand today, uh, Juan Rosello, who uh, introduced me to the concept of elevating certain minerals and, and, and balancing them with others. So elevating magnesium, and re- reducing calcium intake, in particular, to managing my dairy intake. And that was transformational for me and actually meant that it allowed me to come off steroid inhalers and I'm now asthma free. Uh, and for me, uh, I, it, it made me evangelical. Um, and I wanted to know more and more and more. And those two years with me basically finding out more about um, the nutritional intake of a modern diet, mine in particular, but I soon realized that everybody is very, very similar. The modern, processed, immediate Western diet is very different 
mm. to how our bodies have 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 have, uh, have grown um, to uh, uh, to get used to. You know, for m- millennia, um, we, we've been used to a certain a certain diet, a certain nutritional intake, and really, it's only in the past two hundred years that we've transformed into this um, very very modern Western diet that permeates throughout the world. Now, it's mm. not just here in the West; it's it's now ev- every every country in in, in the world. I think um, that's absolutely right. And um, the, the importance of, of course, vitamin supplements, et cetera, it's really creeped into the, um, it's crept rather into the uh, sort of the limelight at the moment, hasn't it, with the emergence of um, a global pandemic such as COVID-19. And um, vitamin D is incredibly important. And that's something which is a, speciali- a specialism of yours, isn't it? So this providing uh, vitamin D through uh, the, uh, the supplement products that you uh, create. And that's also been garnering some attention, hasn't it, during this uh, recent time? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I, after after magne- our, our launch into the world of magnesium, predominantly transdermal magnesium, and, and, and the specialism of Better You is, is, is actually finding um, or formulating supplements that offer an alternative to, or effective alternative to tablets and capsules. There's a vast a growing uh, population who either can't take tablets or capsules, um, for whom tablets and capsules simply don't work, or they just prefer not to take any more. Um, and there are other routes. And I was looking at um, vitamin D probably about nine years ago, and I was always, you know, always learned that you know you look at the um, the research, the published research trials, the evidence, uh, and you could see this hockey stick of uh, of, of the growth of published reports looking at vitamin D and and a whole host of autoimmune diseases. Um, And you think, you know, where there's so much information coming out, in particular, it was was at that time, it was the States, but more and more in the UK as well. Uh, Dr. Adrian Martineau uh, um, certainly led the charge over here. Um, You think where there's so much information, there will be a commercial need, certainly commercial opportunity. Um, So I actually actually initially developed an oil-based capsule. D is an oil-based vitamin, um, an oil-based capsule. And actually, I had a very, very good, continue to have a very good relationship with Dr. Charles Hurd, who's head of pharmacy and pharmacology at Cardiff University. He absorption tests all our products. And he said, well, why a capsule, Andy? And I said, well, why not? And he suggested um, that I look into oral sprays. And actually, he and I did the absorption data looking at um, vitamin D absorption through the buccal membrane, the inner cheek. So it completely transformed my company. Um, but also, I think it was you know, very much uh, pioneering in the world of nutritional supplementation. So vitamin D was our first oral spray of vitamin. So it, it's close to my heart. It's been around for nine years now, and um, we launched Vitamin D Awareness Week, um, which happens in October. Uh, and we've been... Uh, very, very active on the um, media uh, expansion of the vitamin D question uh, because it's, it's relatively, it has been poorly understood. As I say, the research is there, but it hasn't really made it into the, into the realms of, of media or the general public. It has now, and certainly, as you, as you rightly say, during COVID-19, people have become much more aware of the importance of uh, a strong immunity, an immune system, and the role vitamin D plays in that. Historically, vitamin C has always been the go-to vitamin for immunity. Mm. Uh, and indeed, it does play an important role. But vitamin D is absolutely fundamental. And, it, you know, the irony isn't, isn't lost on us that um, you know, lockdown has actually happened during the sunniest, sunniest time uh, of, of the year. Mm. And certainly, it's spring 
when our vitamin D levels are pretty much at their rock bottom, at their lowest, as we come out of six months of, 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 of poor sun and winter, uh, it's a spring when we normally get out there and start to absorb um, the UVB radiation from the sun, which helps promote vitamin D production in the body. But without that, um, you know, the vast majority of us live in internal existence anyway. Um, vitamin D just isn't produced. We, we, you certainly can't eat your way out of a vitamin D deficiency. So supplementation is very much here to stay. And I think it's been the subject of, it is currently the subject of two international trials, very large clinical studies, which actually has, has um, sucked up quite a bit of the uh, polycalciferol, the, the ingredient for, for vitamin D supplements uh, in the world. But it's great to see that there's that much interest in it. Uh, we've certainly seen demand um, escalate over the last three months for vitamin, our vitamin D products. It's really interesting, isn't it, that even though it's been a very difficult, challenging and tragic time, there are some real positives to take from it, as such as awareness some of this um, issue. Also, this renewed focus on health, mental health especially, and well-being as well. And also on sustainability in the environment going forward. And these are things that really we shouldn't be losing sight of as we do move through this pandemic. So uh, You're absolutely right. I think this pandemic, and you're right, I mean, th- th- this has been traumatic and awful for everyone. Um, and you know, I, I think it's it's it, it really does make your heart sink when you think of some poor companies that just won't be opening their doors again. Um, and uh, the fear of the future is, is very much with a lot of people, uh, which, which, which I completely get. But it has given people time for thought and maybe time for pause. Um, and during that time, um, I think you know a lot of good has come from this. Um, but certainly, our, I think our relationship with packaging has been uh, has been renewed as well. I think uh, online uh, orders have obviously gone through the roof, uh, and more and more packaging has been coming into our household, and maybe has made us think a little bit more about how much packaging we really need. And certainly, uh, at Better You, I mean, we uh, all our all our um, sprays uh, products actually come in, in in plastic, plastic bottles, plastic pump sprays. Um, and, and in effect, you could say that these are these are single use, um, which is um, single use plastic is, is is you know one of the root causes of uh, of the increase in in plastic waste in the world. So we knew we had to make a stand. There's no real um, sensible alternative to plastic for certain products, ours being one. Um, anything else would be would require too much outer packaging, or would just be too heavy to ship. Um, so economically and environmentally would be negative in other areas. The plastic's here to stay. So what can we do to plastic? So um, we took a long, hard look at the source of plastic and decided that ocean waste was a, a very good and sensible first uh, first sort of call to, to, to look at where we can get our plastic from. We've worked with some fantastic um, and technically advanced companies to get plastic sourced from um, oceans. And using communities, actually fishing communities, to uh, dredge the the, the, uh, the the beaches and the the uh, shores, and get the plastic back into recycling. Uh, and it's unbelievable the amount of plastic that uh, uh, that you can get. I mean, we've used uh, probably um, this year we'll use around about um, 14, uh, 15 tons of plastic. It just it just in our oral spray bottles, and that's doubled from last year. 
and it will be double again uh, next year. And we're a relatively small company. Uh, this can be done on a, on a, a mega industrial uh, uh, level. Uh, and the plastic waste problem is already on an industrial level. We, we've, we've had decades of throwing it into the uh, environment and throwing it into the ocean. So it needs an industrial solution to bring it back out. Uh, and we're happy to be, to be part of this. And mixed with our um, post-consumer waste, so we use UK post-consumer waste uh, as well for our plastic, uh, and also, uh, most recently, uh, we use uh, plant-based plastic. This is a plastic that's actually derived, all plastics derived from ethanol, um, but normally it's fossil fuel that creates the ethanol, which is an amazing pollutant. So we actually use um, uh, plant production, and in particular sugarcane, to produce the ethanol, which then goes into plastic production. And that saves so many tons of uh, CO2. And in fact, so much CO2 is used in the growth of the plants, uh, sugarcane, that actually it's carbon negative, uh, uh, not even carbon neutral, carbon negative. So more CO2 is, is actually uh, taken up in the growth of the, of the plant than is expanded in its uh, transport and production of plastic. So these are initiatives that we hold very, very dear and have actually come, uh, be, become very pertinent in the plastic discussion and packaging discussion that people are having now. And if we do think about the uh, the future of uh, that uh, discussion, especially over the uh, the next uh, twelve to eighteen months as we move through the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, what do you envision for yourself, um, Andrew, um, and also for better you from a business perspective, but also as society as a whole? And um, what do you hope that we achieve in that time? From um, a personal perspective, from a business perspective, uh, we can only see um, continued growth. I think the um, the health industry itself has been growing well over the past decade, certainly year-on-year um, -year growth of somewhere between 6 and 10% uh, annually. Um, Better You in particular um, has been growing 20 to 30% annually. Um, this past three months, we've seen us grow 85% year-on-year. Uh, and I believe that people's um, elevated awareness in the importance of Self, the importance of health and the importance of increasing our resilience to external stress, both physical and emotional, uh, I think will mean that the health industry it, it has a very good and healthy future. Um, what I would like to see come from this in addition to that, however, is, is more focus on recycling. Uh, I know a lot of my peers uh, uh, and the, uh, the, some of the industry leaders within my in industry are working hard to reevaluate how they package and how they produce their products to try and reduce their carbon footprint, reduce their environmental impact. You know, none of us are perfect. In fact, most commercial organizations are far from perfect. Um, but you have to do something. But it's only, it's only worthwhile, it only works if the consumers then know how to recycle. Uh, and I believe, and I, in fact, I know for a fact, there is a, a, an elevated willingness to recycle. But that's not matched by the ability to recycle. Just popping it in the recycling bin often isn't, isn't enough. That would be a good start. But I just don't think local authorities are helping uh, consumers enough into what happens after that and what can and can't be recycled. Some authorities, uh, I'm Welsh originally, 
I think the Pembrokeshire Authority is, is fantastic. They supply, I think, seven different types of recycling bins for different different types of recycling um, packaging. Uh, other uh, other um, authorities, it's a single bin, and you put everything in and hope for the best. Um, some authorities even stipulate, no, we don't want um, PET or we don't want low density polyethylene, and that puts the onus on the consumer, the general public, to, to know the difference. And more often than not, they don't. So do they put it in anyway, or do they try and just not recycle? There's just, it's just too vague. It's not specific enough, and it's not helpful enough. And, and I would love to come from this a more joined-up policy uh, for recycling that all uh, authorities, all councils actually sign up to. It's publicly viewable, um, measurable. Uh, and that we, we can all join in. There, there is definitely a willingness to do that. I would agree with that. I think there is um, certainly yeah, your willingness. And um, it seems as well that Prime Minister Boris Johnson isn't um, unfazed by um, the coronavirus pandemic and continuing to head towards net um, zero carbon emissions by 2050, a huge goal for the UK. But even so, I mean, climate change um, in that sense is a massive thing, but we can't, of course, ignore recycling as well, as you've rightfully said, as part of that, Andrew. And you know what? I think it would actually be fantastic, given how informative it's been today from a listener's perspective, to perhaps even catch up in the next year or so and have you back on the programme just to see where exactly we're at at that point and what has changed. Oh, I'd love that very much. I would as well, Andrew. I'd really, really relish that um, opportunity. It's a shame that, of course, we don't have more time on today's programme. Otherwise, we could talk about it all afternoon, I'm sure. Um, it's been a real pleasure, Andrew. Thank you ever so much again for taking the uh, the time to join us. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on at the moment because we're not quite out of the woods yet with this, as we well know. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. That was Andrew Thomas speaking, founder and managing director of Better You. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough back in August 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can, 
uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and a, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks. And uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.